Thank you, my brother. Good evening, church. Good to see you tonight. Good to be back. Thank you, Jamie, for the intro. Uh, it humbles me to even be mentioned with some of those other guys and, uh, and, and to know that we're making a difference and helping feed you a little bit. That blesses my heart. Um, it would have been worth the trip just for the food so far, which has been amazing. And then, and then I'm just like you, that, that sit around talking, the fellowshipping, and the, the wrestling with stuff and asking each other questions. And I live for that. I love those, those turning over some stuff. And so I've had a good time today and, uh, and I've been very, very excited to all day long about tonight, about sharing the word, about uh, opening up the word and seeing Jesus and seeing what we can find together and taking a journey. I, I just want to just begin by um, letting you know, hopefully this is, you're in a house where you already know this, but just let me reinforce it, how washed you are in the love of the Lord Jesus and forgiven and the favor is yours and you belong to him and he belongs to you. And, and like, like Pastor said, uh, he holds you Aren't you glad he holds you stronger than you hold him? It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote and said, when you are faithless, he is faithful. Well, thank God for that because I've been faithless more than once. And he has always been faithful. And I just want to encourage you that if you feel faithless tonight, don't feel bad about that. It's okay. You can feel faithless. You can even be faithless once in a while. It is who he is that keeps you, not who you are. And he's faithful, so thank God for that. And, and I hope you'll just sit back, relax, enjoy the word a little bit tonight as we journey together in it and, and see what the Father would have to say to us. I'm going to start tonight in Hebrews 4, and I'm going to minister a little bit on, on his sympathy or sympathy for our weaknesses. That's an interesting thought. And so I, I just want to develop some thoughts out of that one statement that he has sympathy for our weakness. And I want to start with the thought that we're all weak in one area or the other, and we're all weak more often than we want to admit. And it's not anti-identity or anti-grace to admit that you're weak or to admit that you have faults or to admit that you have problems. It doesn't mean you have a bad confession. It doesn't mean your, your faith is waning. It doesn't mean you have an identity crisis. Some of the things we like to throw when we hear people say bad things about themselves. In the grace community, we, we jump back like we're Superman in front of kryptonite when someone says, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Um, I don't agree that you're a sinner. I do agree you're saved by grace, but I do understand the mentality of I'm a step away from problems once in a while, and God's grace is the only thing that keeps them from destroying me. And in that, I'll say amen. To that, you're a sinner saved by grace. I get that. I don't think I have to, I don't think I have to poo-poo that statement every time I hear somebody say it because I want to get their theology right. Because I think when we leave that, when that becomes sort of our bristle, like a, like a porcupine, people are afraid to admit faults around us because we're going, to, we're going to jump them for a bad confession. And, and how many of you realize that what that does is create an atmosphere where people go right back to the way it was under the law, where they feel better putting on a fake smile and a fake front because those grace people won't let me admit my failures because they just want me to talk about how I'm favored all the time. 
When I came into grace, I had the erroneous uh, belief, and I actually and I preached this for a while because I didn't know any better. But I had this erroneous idea that man, I've discovered the favor message. We're going to see a super breed of Christian out of this, man. We're going to see this super breed of people who walk in the high favor of God, who live above all that other stuff and all that stuff the rest of the church world is fighting about. And, they, man, we're going to have an identity that where we know who we are and all that other stuff's going to fall by the wayside. And I struggled with stuff like God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble because I, 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 I thought... You know, if, you, if you're one of the sons of God, you ought to be proud of it. My goodness, I mean, that's something to be proud of, not realizing that I'm in some ways playing right into that, that very old thing of you got to put up a front, kind of a fake it till you make it. Don't admit any of your mistakes. Just claim God's grace and believe that your identity overcomes those things. And I don't think it's biblical. And I think it's unhealthy, even in the message of grace, to not be able to realize that embracing the weaknesses that you have is the key to walking in grace in those weaknesses. That if we can't identify the areas where we are weak and we can't identify the areas where we're falling short, then we're never going to be able to acquiesce to the grace of God in that area for our life because we're not being honest with that area of our life. Part of that is a mess. Uh, I recently kind of did a deep dive into Jacob's encounter with the man in the wilderness and he wrestles in the wilderness and he ends up the next morning with a limp that stays with him for the rest of his life and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel and I walked away from that story and it's just really been burning on my heart and I kind of want to use that idea as a springboard tonight this idea that Jacob limped the rest of his life and he probably learned to view the limp as a positive experience rather than as a negative experience, because the limp represented the moment when he went to the mat with the darkest parts of himself. And so sometimes what we need to learn to do is embrace the areas of ourself that might seem weak or might seem negative on the surface and say, I believe that in Christ, God's grace can do something great for me in that area. Now, all of that's just rah-rah, cheerlead, um, self-help improvement if it's not biblical and it's not based in Christ, because you can go anywhere in the world and have somebody try to encourage you and say, hey, you can do better, and uh, if you'll try harder, this will work. And we hear that in church, and we hear that in, in uh, self-help seminars, and you can go top 40 on the bookshelf at the bookstore and buy five copies of that book under different titles of how if you'll do this, you can fix your life. And I'm not against you trying to fix your life. It's a way better than trying to ruin it. Doesn't that, I mean, that seems logical. It's way better to try to fix your life than to try to ruin it. I would even say it's way better to try to fix your life than to do nothing at all. Okay? Doing nothing at all is often the wrong answer as well. So I'm not down in self-help. I'm not, hey, help yourself where you can. Praise God. Please help yourself where you can. But there's a bunch of stuff that we need to be honest with the Father. We need to be honest with each other. And we need to bring it to him and say, I'm not going to walk backwards off this weakness and say I don't have it because I'm afraid that I have a bad identity. Instead, I want to bring that weakness to you, Father, and I want to see what together through your grace can happen in that weakness. That'll make us more honest. And when you're more honest, you don't have to cover up the lie and you don't have to defend the lie and you don't have to be the lie in front of other people. And man, that's the worst part of the lie, by the way. The worst part of the lie is not just that you have to remember to tell it over and over again. The truth would have been easier. 
But the worst part of the lie is you have to live it over and over again. You have to keep putting that lie mask on when you pull into the church parking lot or when you go to the grocery store or when you meet someone on the street. You have to keep putting that facade, that front, instead of just accepting weakness. And we have a real issue. I know I haven't read any scripture yet, but just getting there. Just getting there, all right? Just warming up, all right? Uh, we have a real issue with weakness in the church, particularly in the Grace Church. We have, a, we, we have a, a real issue with people being able to admit that they're weak and that they struggle, that they're discouraged, that they're depressed, that they're down, because we, we call all that stuff demonic, or we say it's of the devil, or we say you, if you were reading this or doing this, you wouldn't have this issue. If you were going over here, if you were watching so-and-so, if you'd stop watching so-and-so, you'd get over these issues. Instead of just realizing that this stuff's already been covered, the word and that Christ has actually already dealt with this so that the answer we need just like we said last night has already been planted in us and it's a matter of going to find out what that answer is so let's take a look at Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 I told you and we talked a little bit last night about some of the product we've brought one of them back there is the book of Hebrews that we taught and I remember when I taught the book of Hebrews um, I'm tempted to teach it again just because um, I've learned to slow down a little bit. I think it would take me longer than 43 messages this time to get through Hebrews. But I do remember when I, when I did teach Hebrews, one of the major impactful things for me was that I, I felt like I went from a head knowledge of grace to a heart knowledge of grace in that journey. That it went from being these theological principles I was learning to being the basis of how I govern my heart and letting grace govern that. Part of the reason for that is that Hebrews is so straightforward with the legalities of Hebrew code, stacking them up next to Jesus, and all the stuff we've ever done in religion sort of ends up on column the left column of here's, here's the good way to be religious, and then here comes Jesus on the other column, and Hebrews does that over and over, just stacks those two columns, and it was easy for me to learn that way because I, I knew column A. You know, I mastered, so to speak, column A. And then here comes grace. And I had all these theological principles up here about, about this new column. The book of Hebrews helped me to just make that divorce final <laughs> between those two columns and just to embrace. Now, part of it, though, is because the book of Hebrews makes Jesus human in a way that is unheralded. When you really dig into the meat of this book, it's showing you the human side of Jesus that I have found, quite frankly, a lot of unbelievers can get a little uncomfortable with the human side of Jesus. Now, now I want you to know, you're, I don't know that you'll find a bigger advocate in the world in the pulpit for making Jesus look good. I, I don't think you will. I, I, I try to make Jesus look as, as real and as good as possible, and I fall short because you can't make him look as good as he is. He's just that good. With that said, I do believe it's worth embracing the humanity of Jesus that walked right up to the edge of weaknesses so that we can understand that because Jesus walked right up to the edge of weaknesses, he understands our weaknesses. And the book of Hebrews, very risky in the fourth and fifth chapter of Hebrews, walks Jesus to the edge of weakness so that the reader can embrace a Jesus we don't think about very often. So I want to dig in on that Jesus a little bit and do some work with him. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession or our profession. Let's hold fast the fact 
that we have a high priest who's already done this. No matter what comes out of the next few verses, start here. Hold fast to the fact that Jesus has already done it. Now, I'm going to talk about some stuff I can't do, but I'm going to remember that I'm going to do it anchored to the fact that he can do it. So I'm going to hold fast my profession about Jesus, even when my profession about me doesn't look good. I didn't say my profession about me was wrong. I said my profession about me doesn't look good. It's right. It just doesn't look good because I'm not always doing things right. He's right. So I'm going to hold fast to him being right and the fact that I'm not always right is okay. Can we start there? He's right. I'm not always right. That's okay. In fact, if I don't get that, I'm going to be disappointed because I'm going to do wrong. I'm going to see wrong in me and I'm not going to understand why because I've been lying to myself that there's nothing wrong with me. How many of you realize that there is sometimes something wrong with me? Even though I'm in grace? Absolutely. I've been digging into the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And the one thing that keeps popping out at me is Jesus keeps telling his church, Hey, I love you. You're doing good. You're blessed. I see your works. And then he turns around and says, but I have something against you. And I think, how can Jesus have something against me if everything's right? It's because everything ain't right. He's right. He's right in me. But I want to confront the areas of my life that by confronting with my profession of who he is, I might be able to see victory over. I might be able to change. I might be able to walk into a newness of life. See, I'm supposed to be walking into a newness of life. It's not all accomplished. I'm walking into it. And so I'm walking into it because I hold fast to my confession of who he is and what he has done. So let's get that out of the way. Who is he and who, what's he done? He's your high priest. He's already shed his blood. All the work for your redemption is finished. All the work for your righteousness is finished. The high priest passed through the heavens, sat down next to God. There ain't even a chair in heaven. He has to sit down on the mercy seat because it's the only piece of furniture in the temple. He sits down at the place you used to be judged because his blood has decreed that there's nothing left to judge you for. Now hold fast to that profession. You start right there, you're going to be able to handle whatever it is you run up against that has your name on it. All right, so Christ is the answer to that. With that solved, we go to 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Look at that. We have weaknesses. The fact that we do not have a high priest who cannot be sympathetic to our weaknesses, the fact that that verse exists in my Bible tells me that the author of Hebrews thought his audience would not have a problem admitting that they have weaknesses. And the fact that I have weaknesses means I need someone who has experienced what I'm weak in, and he, he is. Look at this. He was tempted in all points as I am, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, let us, therefore, get it right and stop this sin business and stop confessing that we have weaknesses because he's already taken care of it. But we know that's not what it says. Let us, therefore, when you see a therefore, you need to know what it's there for. What's this therefore there for? Because I don't have a high priest that doesn't understand my weakness. My high priest does understand my weakness. Why? Because my high priest experienced my weakness and didn't sin. Therefore, since I have a weakness, but I also have a high priest, I get to come boldly to the throne of grace so that I may obtain mercy and find grace to help when? In time of need. So if you deny you have need, Hebrews 4.16 is no longer effective for you. So if you want to live in a Christian environment where you don't have any weaknesses and you don't have any needs because you're a grace kid, 
Well, then you don't need the profession that you have a high priest who's already passed through the heavens and done it all on your behalf. In other words, you don't even really need God's grace to do anything in your life because you don't have any weaknesses that grace need to kick in on. Because maybe you're the super breed who has so identified themselves as the sons and daughters of God, they don't have any faults, failures, or weaknesses any longer. And because you don't have any, why do you need to hold fast to a profession of a high priest? Priests are only for people that mess up. I don't mess up because I'm one of the sons of God. Therefore, I don't need a high priest. I don't need to hold fast to any kind of profession. I think we need to stop lying to ourselves and calling it grace. I think we need to admit that when it comes to my righteousness, accomplished. I can profess that. When it comes to sacrificing blood on the altar, accomplished. My high priest has already taken care of that. I can lay hold of the profession and the confession that Jesus has paid it all and at the same time admit that I got some problems. That in a few areas, I'm kind of messed up. That I'm a little weak. That I need some help. That I need it badly enough that I even need you, and you might even need me. And I need you to listen, and I need to, to listen to you. And I need you to hold up my hands sometimes, and sometimes I need to hold up yours. And I need heard, and I need to know that I'm heard, and I need to offer you the same courtesy. And I need to stop trying to create an environment where failure is believed to, where when people make a mistake, that failure is what we are labeled with, but rather that when we make a mistake, we just realize that's one of the things that won't work. So maybe we should change gears and not do that any longer because failure isn't the great problem that we've made it out to be. In fact, I think we've done a disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ by making perfection the end game. I think we sold, a, we sold a bill of goods to people that said what we're supposed to be doing is coming to Jesus because the ultimate aim is that you never sin anymore and that you don't mess up any longer and that you don't have any mental issues and you don't have any psychological issues, you don't have any emotional issues, you don't have any physical issues because the closer you get to Jesus, all that stuff's going to go away. You don't need Hebrews 4. Just kick this, just get rid of it, tear this right out of your Bible. Why do you need someone who stands in front of his father rock solid in every area that you have failed if you don't ever have any failures, if you don't ever have any weaknesses, if you don't ever have any problems. If we can get rid of that straw man that is the superman of the faith that has all of his identity and his confessions down pat and never has any issues, if we could get rid of that guy, we might be able to embrace and go, you know what, I've been having some issues up here and I've been having some issues down here and I've been having some issues right here and I've been having some issues over here and it won't be hard then to find some areas where you go, you know what I need? I need to see it in Jesus so I can start to see it in me. And I need to admit that there are some areas of weakness in my life. Because what this text tells me is that if we deny these weaknesses and we deny that we have a season of need, then we deny a very important part of being human. Why did Jesus need to become a man? Couldn't God have just decreed salvation as an authoritative act of heaven? I mean, we always say God can do whatever God wants to do. God wants to heal you, God will heal you. God wants to raise you up, God will raise you up. Then why in the world couldn't God just say, you know how we're going to take care of this sin business? Just like that. Boom. Taken care of. Righteous. Redeemed. Forgiven. Identity. Boom. All of it. Now, we come up with a lot of really well-crafted, very well-thought-out, very well-argumented, and, and not necessarily wrong arguments for why God became a man and died on the cross for our sins. And they're all, I think they're right. I think there's a, I don't, because I don't think there's one answer. I think there's a bunch of answers. There's not time to go through, okay, here's another reason here. But here's a crucial, to me, a crucial reason why it had to happen. 
And it it's brought out at Calvary when Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the longer I've journeyed in ministry, the more my mantra of how to read the Bible is becoming, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, can you stay with me here just for a second? I, this is a house where I feel like I can just really be comfortable. and I'm going to push, push the envelope with you for just a second, all right? Because once again, I, I'm going to say what I said last night. I'm not trying to tell you how to think. I'm trying to give you ways to think, all right? So you can disagree with this. I don't want to make it sound like God doesn't know something, but I, th I think in the cosmos, God found it absolutely essential that he was going to have to become a man to truly relate to how man feels about being a man. And he needed us to see him be that. And at Calvary, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, God has never said anything like that in the Old Testament. There's not a moment in the Old Testament where God goes, you know what, I'm going to forgive it because you guys are ignorant. Now, the New Testament elaborates on that. The Apostle Paul actually preaches that in the book of Acts. He goes, the times of this ignorance God once winked out, now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. We don't hear that kind of talk in the Old Testament. What happens in the New Testament that starts to make that shift? I believe that as God puts on an earth suit, becomes a man, because Jesus grew in grace and in knowledge with both God and man, which means that Jesus was, here's the, here's the risky part, Jesus was learning as he went. All right? Jesus was learning, why? Because he allowed himself to be a man. Listen, if he wasn't learning as he went, he was a fake man. He wasn't a real man. He doesn't do you any good. He was lying in that situation. He's already got it figured out. He's down here acting like he's one of you, and the joke's on you because I already know what's up. I got all the answers. I don't need to learn anything. I've got this nail, but that's not the Jesus we see. The Jesus we see is sometimes hesitant to talk. He's slow. I don't mean mentally slow. He functions through the world at half speed we would sometimes because he's taking that extra second to hear what dad would say. I, I call that the doodling in the sand moment where Jesus reaches down and doodles when they're stoning the woman caught in the act of adultery because he's buying a little time to hear what dad would have him to say in that situation. And man, isn't that genius? And wouldn't that help a couple times in your life if you had decided to doodle before you decided to type? Just a second of doodling would have been a good call right there. It would have saved a world of pain. Jesus tries to teach us that. goes, you know, it ain't easy being human. And so as he walks through this life and he encounters all that he encounters, he hangs between heaven and earth. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And if you look at that through one lens, then you're going to say, well, what Jesus was saying is, is they're ignorant. They didn't know they was killing the Lord of glory. So he's not holding them responsible. I don't buy that. I just don't buy it. You can buy that. I don't buy that. Let me put some different bread on the table. I think what Jesus is hanging there saying is, Dad, it ain't easy being them. I've been one now for 33 years and failed the Father. It ain't easy being them. And I'm going to come out of the grave to be the best possible version. And if they'll believe on me, I'll, I'll move into them and they can move into me. That's the only way they're going to make it. And you know what? That helps me when I read Jesus. It helps me to watch Jesus navigate the earth listening to his Father, doing what his father does, walking right up to the edge of weakness. Now, what do I mean by that? See, because this text tells me that Jesus understands my weakness because he was tempted in all points I am. Here's all we ever focus on on that. This is a shame. We'll go, Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. That means Jesus faced everything you did, and he did it better than you. Well, that's real encouraging. 
So, I mean, what, what in the world are we quoting this for? He was tempted just like Jamie was tempted. Well, Jamie messes up, Jesus doesn't mess up. Well, well, praise God for that. You know, you didn't even have to write that down. I'm pretty sure I could figure out that I don't do as good as Jesus does. That's not what the author of Hebrews is trying to remind his audience of. Like, hey, you, you cocky guys that think you got it all figured out. Jesus was tempted like you are, but he didn't sin. What'd you do the last time you were tempted? That's not the verse. The verse is saying, hey, you got a high priest who's standing in front of the Father, but it's not a high priest that doesn't know what you're going through. It's a high priest that went through what you're going through. The only difference is he didn't, he didn't move outside of the target of his Father in those situations, and because of that, he understands what it means to go right up to the edge of weakness. How many of you remember in the, in the New Testament, Jesus comes out of the Jordan River, the Bible says, and he went down into the desert to be tempted. He went down, led by the Holy Spirit. There's a particularly important passage there. He went down into the desert, led by the Holy Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. And then he gets down into the wilderness, and at the end of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, the devil shows up and tempts him. Now, how many, don't, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but just this rhetorical question, but just answer this in your spirit. How many of you have read that? And when the temptations came out of what happened to Jesus in the wilderness, there's how many? Three? How many have you faced in your life? Is this, is this your number? It's probably times a thousand this, right? How many of you have read those three and went, well, gosh, I could have thought of a couple more he probably should have went through while he was down in there. He really wanted to show if he's got the strength to overcome the devil. You don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer if that's you. That's not me. I just made that up. That, that's not how I think. No, not at all. Not when I read the word. <laughs> Truthfully, I have. I've read it and went, I wish he'd have faced this and this and this, because I'd kind of like to see what he would do on that one, because I've faced that, that, and that. That'd be a good idea to have some stuff to work with. So I've, been, I've thought a lot about that. Now, part of it, I don't want to get in the weeds here too much, but I'm already in there, so let's chase it. Part of it is that the, Jesus faces sort of the archetypes of all temptation while he's in that wilderness. And so if you do a study of those three temptations, they are really at the core of almost every temptation you ever face. And that's why there's three of them. The other part of it is something I'm still wrestling with, but I'm going to experiment on it with you, all right? And that is this. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin because we don't have a high priest who's not sympathetic to our weaknesses. I think maybe the reason the three we know about in the Gospels, see what I said there? The three we know about are because those were the three areas where he was the weakest and the closest to failure. And God wanted to show you Jesus both figuratively and literally on the edge of falling off the earth. Remember where Satan takes him to a high ledge, offers him the kingdom? I think there's something happening there where Jesus is being tempted in the weakest possible areas of who he is. Because if you walk through those and watch how much easier it would have made his life to just do all of the things he was tempted to do in the wilderness. Everything from turn those stones to bread to bowing down to receive the kingdoms of the earth, to casting himself off of that mountain. He can, he can take care of a lot of problems. He can, he, can del he can get what he wants with instantaneous results without working for it. Boy, that'd be nice. And when you know what's coming in your life, that's a temptation for Jesus, no doubt. He can, 
receive the kingdoms of the earth without going to the cross, without the cross, burial, resurrection, ascension, descension into the heart of man. I can still have the things of this earth, or I can cast myself off of this. That'll show them. You'll never question any of my miracle-working power because the thing I did on day one was have angels catch me before I crashed and burned into the middle of a canyon. There's nothing that I can't do. Wow, this makes my ministry so much easier. No, People are going to believe everything that I say because, and everything that I do. I, I just feel like what we're seeing in those areas are those moments where Jesus is at the hour of his maximum weakness. And he overcomes, and he does it with identity, and he does it with Scripture, and he does it by knowing who he is and all of the things that you and I need to do. But it tells me that it doesn't mean that you are fallen and that you have a, that, that you are somehow out of his favor, that you somehow have been disqualified for faith or that grace isn't at work with you when you are taken up to the edge in your weaknesses. And I'm not just talking about temptation anymore. I'm talking about whatever area it is that you bring to the table tonight that is just not your best self. It's not your best moment. And instead of put, sweeping those under the rug and denying them and going, well, they don't really belong to me because I'm a child of God, what if we realize that those are the moments where we limp into our next encounter and we take our weaknesses and we let that weakness not define what we're going to do, but define what we've overcome because of God's grace and allow those scars and allow that weakness to be something because, if honestly, if perfection if perfection is what we're shooting for, perfection doesn't need grace. Okay? We need grace because we're imperfect people. And if the Bible tells us that it's by grace we are saved, the end game must not be perfection. Right? So let's maybe stop making it appear as if the great quality that Christianity has is... is is that we're aiming towards a higher level of morality or that we're aiming towards a higher principle of living. And let's embrace people for their faults and their failures right where they are. Because if we're willing to embrace people in their weakness, then we qualify them instantly for grace. And the moment they're qualified for grace, it's because they realize that they're weak. And then let's don't do the old bait and switch. Hey, now that you're in here, you don't ever have any more weaknesses because you're one of the sons of God. And so you're just under favor. And so whatever you have, that's an illusion of the devil. Maybe you just have an area of weakness. And in that area of weakness, then through grace you can be made strong. There's something very important, very special about walking in that understanding. He sympathizes with our weaknesses in 15 and in 16. We have a time of need, and the word time there, time of need, is actually the word seasons in the Greek, and I think what the author's trying to say is we're going to go through seasons of need. How many of you realize that seasons don't last forever, so seasons come and go? So sometimes I'm going to be in a season of need, and sometimes I'm not going to be in a season of need, and then I'm going to go back into a season of need. Need what? I don't know. Whatever it is you're weak in. And I don't know for you, and you don't know for me, but need's not a problem, Need doesn't mean you're not favored. Need doesn't mean God's not moving. Need means you have a need. Thank God you have grace. Let's embrace what God's grace is for, areas of our weakness. In reality, when we own these weaknesses, not only do we qualify ourselves for God's grace, but we also qualify ourselves in the ears of the people that need the gospel the most. Because by embracing our weaknesses, we bring to that individual scenario not someone who, they, who has no issues, but someone who has issues. 
and who is still functioning in the grace of God. And to me, the ultimate way to, to express the gospel is not through a bunch of people who have it all figured out, but through a people who realize they don't have it figured out and who embrace grace for those areas. And that gives us a quality to be able to evangelize in a way that we haven't had before. So now flip the page, you're in chapter 4, and then you roll into chapter 5. When the author of Hebrews wrote this, he didn't break it into chapters. He just kept right on plowing into the thought. And so with all of that in mind, look at 5.1. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, I want to stop here for a second. I want to show you that the author of Hebrews just painted himself into a theological corner. I don't know if you caught it. Here was his statement. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed, and he knows how you feel because he's weak. And he has to offer up his own sacrifices for his own weaknesses. And that makes him compassionate because he has problems. He understands that you have problems. Can you see how he's painted himself into a corner? Because he's about to introduce to you that Jesus is your new high priest, but he just told you Jesus sympathized with your weaknesses yet without sin. So painting himself into the corner is that Jesus doesn't need to offer a sin sacrifice for himself because he didn't do anything wrong. So if he doesn't need to offer a sin sacrifice for himself, then how in the world is he possibly going to understand when you fail? Because he doesn't fail. So this is an interesting moment that happens in the book of Hebrews where the author walks us, and by painting himself in the corner, I don't mean accidentally. I believe he knows where he's going. But boy, it sure does feel as you lay these verses out that he goes, now where are you going to go with Jesus on this? Because you just told me that a natural priest needs to offer up a lamb for himself, and but you also told me before that that Jesus never sinned. So what in the world is he going to do that's going to make me identify with him? And the twist is that it won't be about him doing something so that you can identify with him, it's going to be about him taking on something so that he can identify with you. And the twist happens in verse 5. Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said, it was he who said to him, You're my son, today have I begotten you. He also says in another place, You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, that's when he was Jesus, and when he was Jesus, I mean when he was on the earth, because the New Testament likes to call him Christ after he's resurrected. Likes to call him Jesus before he's resurrected. It's trying to differentiate between Jesus in the natural and Christ the resurrected man. How many of you realize that you have Christ the resurrected man, not Jesus in the natural? Jesus in the natural teaches some stuff. What will he teach you? How to act in the natural. You need Jesus in the natural. Jesus in the natural shows you what to do in a natural world. You really need Christ in the spirit. Because Christ in the Spirit shows you how to be a resurrected man. That's our third day word from last night. He put the seed of who his father is inside you and go, no, we can be better than, than the natural. The natural is a set of principles, but the Christ is a way to live. All right? That's transformation. When he was in the days of his flesh, verse 7, that's when he was Jesus on the earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, watch this, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was without sin. He didn't mess up like us. So he gets to the end of it. How in the world is he going to understand us? 
And the way he understands us is he walks headfirst into suffering. And here's where I'm landing on that, in my opinion. We don't all have equal sins. I mean, you do one thing, I do another thing. I mean, we could sit up here all day and argue about who sinned the most, and that's just a stupid argument. Because much of it can be what happened in private. Much of it can be what happened in public. We could tear off sins based on who it affected and who found out about it and whatever. Sin, sin doesn't. We, we, we present sin in a theological sense in that it affects God the same way. We certainly know it doesn't affect us in the same way, depending on what sin it is that we commit. But here's the reality. We've all suffered. Now, we haven't all suffered the same, but we've all suffered. And, where, and here's the really tragic part about being human. If you haven't suffered in an area, you probably will. Okay. I'm not being negative. That's not anti-grace. This is just straight-up reality. How many of you know it ain't easy being human? That's why Jesus at the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It ain't easy being them. We all suffer. So look at this. When Jesus walks the earth, he doesn't sin. So how in the world? He doesn't need to offer up a sacrifice from sin. So how's he going to understand us? He suffers. Why? Because so do we. He's betrayed. He loses people he loves. He suffers at the hands of his enemies and his friends. He's an outcast. He's falsely accused. He's killed for the wrong reasons. He is constantly having to put off his own ideas and thoughts and desires for whatever is put in front of him, for the greater good of what is put in front of him. His suffering is not merely in one area, but in multiple areas. And then whatever is left, Isaiah 53 prophesied, would be put into his body when he went on the cross, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So though Jesus never had to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin, he became the sacrifice at Calvary for all of our sins. And it wasn't just that he bore it, but that he experienced it at Calvary, experienced what it felt like to fail the way I fail. Now, I forget this a lot of times because I think Jesus is at Calvary and he's got all my sins in him and he's carrying it boldly. What if he's not carrying it boldly? What if he's carrying it, but he feels the way you would feel if you had just done that? You say, done what? Any of it. Remember what we were talking about earlier that we could go around the room and go, my sin's worse than your sin. Okay, take all of them and shove them into the Jesus and who he is. And not just the sin, but the consciousness of having done that. And then he hangs on Calvary. Because it doesn't do any good for him to just hang there. He has to suffer here so that he can suffer here. Because it doesn't mean anything if our sacrifice doesn't understand us. This was the fault of the law. I sin, I bring a lamb. I know that that's not good enough. It's just a lamb. The lamb didn't do anything wrong. 
Hebrews realized this, and later in the book he says, here was the problem with the sacrificial system. It didn't take away our sin consciousness. We still felt bad. Why did we feel bad? We killed the lamb. We were supposed to kill the lamb. I shouldn't feel bad after I kill the lamb. The law says if you kill the lamb, you receive forgiveness of sins. But I still feel bad. Why do I feel bad? We go, because that's the condemnation of the devil. No, it's not the condemnation of the devil. It's the condemnation of knowing that a lamb's not as good as you, and it's not worth you. So you kill a lamb, but who cares? It's just the lamb you got by with it you did something wrong and guess who paid the price that thing oh well big deal you go yeah but it cost you money you had to pay for the lamb you don't think people aren't willing to throw money at their sin now <laughs> people have always been willing to throw money at their sin we're willing to throw money at our sin especially if it meant i could get over the guilt of it how how big's the check have to be and so the law couldn't take care of that problem. You don't have to blame that on the devil. That's just because lambs aren't human. It's why some cultures resorted to human sacrifice. Why? Because, well, at least my kid costs me something. I had to kill a piece of me to put my kid on the altar. You go, maybe you'll stop doing stupid things if it's going to cost a piece of yourself. And we, we think that might at least work because we got cultures that if you steal, what happens to your hand? Cut it off. The law tried that too because maybe if you'd pluck people's eyeballs out and cut their hands off, they'd stop looking at what they're not supposed to and picking up what they're not supposed to. Why? Because it costs a lot more to lose your hand than to lose a goat. Okay? But God doesn't want human sacrifice for one simple reason. He loves people. I mean, I can give you 10 good theological reasons why it's not going to be effective, namely that none of them can actually take away your sin, even though they die on your behalf. But his love for people precludes any other possibility of human sacrifice on behalf of human sin. So Christ becomes the human sacrifice on behalf of sin. But that's not even good enough if he doesn't experience all that I'm, that's wrong with me. Historian Rene Girard has a theory that I want to share with you. And his theory is that perhaps we domesticated dogs and cats not because we loved them, but because we wanted to sacrifice them. Now, I'm not advocating animal sacrifice of your dogs and your cats, but stay with me for a moment. Do you know how hard it is to take a wolf or a mountain lion and make that wolf domesticated to live next to your bed at night? How safe do you feel on night number one? Domesticating dog project. Experimental evening number one. Tonight, we brought the wolf into our room. We are trying to make the wolf our new Fido. We want him to be our family pet. We figure it'll take a while, but we could do it. You know, this takes generations. And the reality is, to domesticate dogs and cats, we had to take them from wolves and mountain lions to make them chihuahuas. That's a jump, right? To get from a wolf to a chihuahua. That's going to take generations. In fact, that's going to take hundreds of years. You don't have that kind of time. 
Because, you know, if we were going to domesticate the wild and make them tame, we were going to have to do it as a concerted effort across generations. We were literally going to have to share notes with our grandkids. Here's what you need to do with the wolf on day 300, because this will be the wolf, and this is the only way that we're going to bring him down. And so why bother? It's too hard to do. <laughs> and so his theory was maybe we did it because... We needed to sacrifice, and the most proper sacrifice is always something that we love because it means nothing to sacrifice something we don't. Well, when I heard that theory, my first thought was, oh, that's kind of far-fetched, you know, probably not. But then I remembered the Torah. And in the Torah, on the night of the Passover, four days prior to the Passover, God said, take your choicest lamb, take your best-looking one. The one that's the cute, snuggly, cuddly one. The one with no spots and blemishes. The ones your kids loved when they saw him. Take him and move him into your house on the 10th day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month, sacrifice him as an offering before the Lord. And spread his blood on the doorpost and the door mantle. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And for a long time, I thought, what's the purpose of bringing him into the house for four days? Let me ask you. Go pick the most cuddly, beautiful lamb we've got, little Sally. Bring that lamb into the house. Let him sleep in your bed for the next four days. You talk to him. You feed him. You hug him. You kiss him. You love him. On the fourth day, we're going to kill him. You go, that's cruel. I think it was this understanding. Is that it really only matters if we love it and it hurts to lay it down. So Christ became us experienced our weaknesses, felt our failures. And the more we believe that about Jesus, the more we lean onto his sacrifice for all of our stuff. Because we believe that maybe he identifies with my pain. He understands it. He was hurt. He was betrayed. He lost a loved one. He saw failure. You go, well, don't say Jesus failed. I don't have to. I failed. And if I failed, and I truly believe that Jesus bore my failure, Jesus must have felt what it feels like for Paul White to fail. Now, go ahead and put yourself in there, too. Because the moment you do that, then you might realize that that's Jesus as a man. That's his four days in your house being nice and cuddly, getting to know you, getting to know us. Only in Christ, then, the more human we make Jesus in that moment, the more we can identify with him as our sacrifice. It's no longer a lamb. See where Jesus trumps all of the Torah regulations of sacrifices. When you look at Jesus, you go, that's a real guy. That's not a lamb. That's not a goat. That's not a bullock. That's not a pigeon. That's not a turtle dove. That's a real man. He suffered for me. He died for me. That's not fair. Why would anybody take my sin? And then when we can accept that as, this is why Paul starts pitching the cross as an expression of love, not defeat. Because the cross is not a place of defeat. It says the cross is a place where God expressed his love for you. The cross is a place of great victory. It's foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. But to, the, to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why? Why to us that are being saved? Because when we look at the cross, we see us in him. And if we can see us in him, then we can see him dying as us, not for us. And if he dies as us, then we can say, then it's been paid for somewhere. Why should I have to pay for it twice? That's why the great tragedy is trying to get people to pay for their sins through guilt and shame and works and effort because it denigrates the powerful sacrifice of the cross. But I think it also denigrates the ability of grace to move forward if we deny them 
the right to be weak from that day forward. Don't deny them the right to be weak. Being weak is an expression of the fact that they need to walk by faith, that they need to trust God for his grace, that they need to realize they don't have it all figured out, and that in realizing they don't have it all figured out, they can walk into the place that he would have them walk. He, he was a son, but he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And look at nine. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Having been perfected, you say, I thought Jesus was perfect from day one. Don't think of perfection. Don't think of perfection as the ability to not sin. Jesus didn't sin, and yet the scripture says he became perfected. So when did he have to become perfected? This is where he, the word here is really, he came to full maturity. And in coming to full maturity, he has accomplished what he needed to accomplish so that he could go back to his father. What did he need to accomplish? Experience all of my weaknesses, all of your weaknesses. So he could take them into himself. Jesus comes to the place where he's brought all things into himself so that he can be all in all to all people. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. I just want to hit a couple scriptures on our way to land this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read for you a verse that I think is one of the more misunderstood, misquoted verses in, the, in the Paul's canon. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now there's one that you ought to put. You want to... You want to have a verse of the day, a verse to put to memory. Try this one out. His strength is made perfect in weakness. So stop denying your weak, because when you deny your weak, you deny his ability. You deny God the ability to be made perfect through strength. You want to see God's perfection? You want to see God at his strongest? Come to God with all your weaknesses. So bring whatever it is that you're not good at. Lay it in front of him. Don't run from it. Limp up to him with it. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is my issue. This is my stuff. If I bring my stuff to you, you can show your strength perfectly in my weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmity. This is weird for most of us. Look at this. I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul caught it. Paul goes, look, here's what I figured out. The more I realize I can't do stuff, the more I realize he's made perfect in his strength. It's when his grace gets to show out. So what I've started to do is embrace all the areas of me that don't look so good. Because if I can embrace the areas of me that don't look so good, I can bring glory to the areas of him that do look good. I don't mean I got to keep living in them. I mean the only way to overcome them, the only way for them to not defeat me, the only way for them to not define me is not to deny them. But bring them to him. Show me your strength in the middle of my weakness. Here's what I'm thinking, God. Here's how I'm feeling, God. Here's what, I, here's what I'm saying, God. Here's what I see, God. I don't know if it's good. It's probably not good, but it's the real me, and I'm tired of faking it. And if you can be strong in the middle of my weakness, show out. And Paul goes, I found God can show out. That's why I'd rather glory in my infirmities. Verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities. I take pleasure in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. Here's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, right here, this last sentence. When I am weak, then I am strong. Here's how we quote it. When I am weak, he is strong. Wrong. He's strong whether you're weak or not. All right? His strength doesn't depend on you being strong or weak. No. When I'm weak, then I'm strong because only when I embrace the areas of me that are weak 
can I walk in the strength of God's grace? Listen, if you're a structural engineer and you want to determine the weaknesses of a bridge, you don't go out and apply the most amount of pressure you can to see if you can knock it down into a river. That didn't do anyone any good. All you did was start all over again building bridges. And you still don't know when it was too weak. You just know, hey, it won't hold 100 tons. Well, would it have held 99? I don't know. We went straight to 100 because we were just going to find out if it was weak. Well, congratulations. Anything can break. But if you want to test its weaknesses, you need to apply pressure to the spots that could be weak. Don't break them. Stress them. Stress them to the point that if you put more on them, they would break. Then, once you've exposed the weaknesses, then you can make the weaknesses strong. Because it's only once you've identified what is weak can you begin to reinforce what is weak to make it strong. If you go out just to knock stuff over, you can knock stuff over. But if you want to find the areas that need strength, and so bring your weaknesses to the Father. Only when you bring your weaknesses can you find that strength to say, this is where I struggle, and I'm going to need your grace to help me through this. It's not when I'm weak, he is strong. Wrong. He's strong all the time. It's when I'm weak, then I'm finally at a place where I can rest in the strength that he gives me. One more, 2 Corinthians 13, 4. It's one chapter over. For though he was crucified in weakness, look at that. He was crucified in weakness. You want to know how he can tell he can taste your weaknesses? Because he was crucified in your weakness, in my weakness. My sin upon him, the guilt of my sin became his guilt. All of my failure became his failure. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. It's okay to be weak. Just be weak in Christ. Here's where I'm weak, Lord. This is my stuff. But I know you love me. More importantly, even more important than you loving me? Yeah, more importantly is I know you took my weaknesses and you suffered beneath them all my stuff, and you put them in you at Calvary. And wherever I'm weak, you've already been weak. And so as I lay that in front of you, I can receive your grace to do what I need you to do. He needed to associate it so that he could be the proper sacrifice. So what's the point? This is what the Lord's been saying to me more and more and more when I do lessons and sermons, because especially you speak in the same group every week and you're just expositing scripture. You're like, okay, we're going to do two more verses tonight. What do you want to accomplish? Just two more verses? I mean, Three more verses? Why didn't you go for four? You know, what's, what's your end game? Is it just to get 60 minutes in, or what do you want to accomplish? So I always try to get, before I even get up and go, what would be the thing I want them to walk back to their car with tonight? Like, what, 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 what would I hope you take home? It's like, ooh, do I want you to take home clever hermeneutic? Ooh, that guy's really good at exegesis. He brings out stuff. Boy, he knows some Greek. But maybe if you could walk away and say, it's okay to be who I am. God understands me, loves me, cares for me, cared for me so much that he took who I am, put it in himself. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It ain't easy being him. It ain't easy being her. Insert your name here. So that I can lay hold of the one who has already taken all my weaknesses. And I can say, Lord, I'm not going to lie about them. Here's what I am. Here's who I am. Change what you change. Do what you do. Only in the areas where I admit that I'm weak can I be strong. And Father, this is the area. Don't lie about it. Take it to the Father. He already knows about it anyway. This is the area. I need your strength in this area. I need your strength for the way I think. I need your strength for the way I feel. 
I don't want to become a slave to my emotions. I don't want to become a slave to my anxieties. Maybe they're weaknesses in me. Maybe they're not, but they're what I am. Sometimes, folks, I don't even know if we realize if they're strengths or weaknesses. We're just denying that they're ours, and that needs to stop. We're denying, the only reason we deny that they're ours is because we're ashamed of it, and we think it's weak. That's why we deny it. I don't have that problem. Why don't you have that problem? Why don't you embrace it? Because people that have that problem uh, are this or that or this or that, or maybe they don't even know the Lord. You go, quit worrying about what people that have that problem are and just accept that that's the area of weakness that you need God's grace to move in your life. Until you accept that, you're never going to see the strength of God function in that area. This is simply trying to bring the truth of who we are back to the table so that we can rest in the truth of who we are in Him. As you can say, His strength is made perfect in my weakness, so that I can be strong in the middle of the areas where I am weak. Let me pray that for you. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I just want to say thank you for the word. Thank you for what you have given us to minister to your people. Father, I I know that, I know I got stuff. I spent, I've spent a lot of time in different areas trying to overcome stuff and deny I got stuff. and It's become so refreshing to just come to you and say, here's my weaknesses. It doesn't change that I'm a son. It doesn't change the favor. Here's my weaknesses. Let's make them strengths. I can only do that because I know you've taken them. Father, I pray that for any man, woman, boy, or girl listening tonight or that's in this room, they'll just bring those weaknesses to you and say it's not a bad thing to bring to you what my issues are. I need your help, Father. I need your grace. Do in me what only you can do. You understand me because you've been made like me. And I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He has sympathy for your weakness. And I I believe that hopefully you take this word tonight, let it sort of be a seed in your heart, develop and grow. Thank you. I pray favor and blessing on you. I'm excited about again tomorrow. Um, I do have some stuff back there. If you've got questions, just come see me. I'm not going to re-announce what it is, but we'll tell you what it is back there and how much it is. But um, thank you so much. Pray God's favor and blessing on you, Pastor Jamie. Thank you, man.